Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. Hello. That was Hello. nice. It's really a different tone for this episode. Like normally Nick comes out, he's like, Hello. Is it, Hello. Is it me you're looking for? Hello and welcome to You Don't Hello. I'm I've been watching a lot of uh a lot of Frasier lately. So oh. I think I'm really <laughs> tapped in to Are we gonna make our inevitable shift to be a Fraser fan Frasier fan cast? No, but we can give out advice if you want. Oh, that's inevitable. Yeah. Uh, inevitable that no, we. St- there are way too many. There are way too many podcasts with part, somewhat related white dudes talking about advice. Yeah, mm. or any other color. Uh, there's absolutely a lot of opinions out there these days. Am I right? Mm. Mm. Oh this is like this is like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> I think I like it. I think it's nice. I think we're going to put our NPR voices on for this evening. All uh, right. I don't like that Joe likes it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. <laughs> My name is Nick Argeris, and this week I'm looking for the best book name levels of the game. And to help me, are two, of course, is, is that the right name of the book? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, and to help me, of course, are two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. I brought, Nick, I brought the only book that I've ever heard of called Levels of the Game. That's a fantastic um, start. Yeah, it's written by John McPhee. It's 100 pages long, or at least my version is, written in 1969, and uh, Nick, I love it. I love Mm -hmm. it so much. Great. And Ian, are you along for the ride? In a world (laughs) where the game (laughs) has levels, Mm -hmm. two players, let them keep going, player one and player two will play each other, and it turns out this has an impact on race relations and our political polarization. Levels of the Game by 1969, written in, in John McPhee, coming this theater by to a summer near you. So was it completed in 1969, or is, uh, did he legally change his name at some point? Yes, he changed his name to John Levels in 1969. <laughs> that's, that's a good name, actually. <laughs> John Levels? Yeah, John Levels. Sounds like a that's sound engineer. <laughs> <laughs> May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. Joe. Joseph. The last time yeah. is this now what is this um is this like a uh one of those like new journalism books? Ooh, good question to start off with. That is that's a hot question to cop to start with. Because um, we have a rich history of those on this podcast. I would say that's a Did, sweet forehand just skimming over the net. Really oh. good. Ian's Ian's going to really lean into the tennis this week. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, hold on. Let me get my let me get my vocab queued up your, your tennis vocab tennis yep. vocab.net <laughs> vocab uh, sorry answer the question joe i will be looking up vocabulary absolutely um <laughs> nick this is it it's it is not new journalism it's just journalism it's just good <laughs> old-fashioned sports writing yeah that, that makes sense you said 1969 old journalism yeah it's it's old um Okay, great. Well, we have a you know I think a rich history of that on this show. I like I like the journalism stories. You know, I if it's that. a good enough story that they made it into a book, you know, there might be something there. 
I read an article uh, or a review or something. So it was it was it was like a it was like a retrospective on McPhee, and the idea is that he's like whereas your Hunter S. Thompsons, your Tom Wolfs are like um, uh, self-awarely gonzo kind of out mm. there pushing the boundaries. He conservative is the wrong word because it has a lot of kind of political. Yeah, it's got a real backhand to it connotations. But he's he is like, hey, no, I'm going to be much more invested in craft and technique. And yeah. he's not trying to reinvent with his style. He's trying to reinvent with his content. So th- the reason I bring this up is some of um, some of the 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 material I read in, in preparation for this was saying that McPhee is actually kind of the anti Tom Wolf. Not in terms yeah. of being awesome, but in terms of like where Wolf and Thompson are trying to like deliberately stylistically shake things up. Uh, McPhee says, hey, I'm going to use the same things you've always used, but I'm going to do it in a way that you've never seen before. Right. Like I'm going to I'm going to put the story first. Right. Like when you read Hunter S. Thompson, when you read Tom Wolf, it's like aggressively Hunter S. Thompson. Like, yeah, I it insists upon Ian. style. Yep, it's it is. But Tom Wolf is like, no, I'm just going to tell a really good story and I'm going to write it incredibly incredibly well well welcome lit heads to an abbreviated episode of you don't know lit a weekly or as we call strongly podcast where every week except for this one we normally pick a theme and uh (laughs) joe and ian bring two books to battle it out but instead ladies and gentlemen i will be your line judge today oh good Good. Nick, Thank I you. like this game within a game. This is levels of the game. I will be lobbing uh lobbing no, you've already match lined. points at <laughs> well, okay. this mixed I think doubles the line tournament was a really good start. at the net with my racket. <laughs> He's what they say drunk with power. We will rally next to um, our receiver. Nick, Joe. I have one question for you. Yeah. Yeah. As the line judge, are your eyes photoelectric? <laughs> I am your lion judge. Would you like us to call you Hawkeye? Rawr. Uh Well, great. Uh, I think we cleared that up. Um, pr- rules don't really matter. So, uh, Joe, congratulations. You win this week. But, um, I'm so excited. Well, maybe. Um, <laughs> oh, God. So, uh, oh, yeah, go for it. Tell us about this book. All right. We have rules, Nick. What are we just abandoning this? Like we have, a, we have a procedure here. It seemed pretty stupid for this week. As we know, there are rules to keep this chaos in check. And yeah, do your stupid shadow rules. That'll be good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, that should cover all. Let's square it off. The uh, the the uh, rules, as you all know, litheads are uh, only unavoidable spoilers. Um, number two. Omit needless words, Joe and Ian this week. And of course, winning isn't every Vince. It's the only Vince Lombardi. Set point match. Good. Yeah, and those are the shadow rules. Game set point match. And of course, (laughs) your shadow rules. (laughs) Game set point match. Set point. Serve. To quote Michael Grand slam. Grand slams are in tennis, huh? Well, Grand Slams are in tennis. They're also in baseball, but in tennis, they're uh, an event. Do you guys want to know a, a really embarrassing personal story? Okay, here it is. Uh, um, yes. when I was, oh, my God, yes. When I was young, I was really bad at hitting a, a, a baseball with a baseball bat. And I was uh-huh. also a lonely, gangly, pestilent child who had no friends and fewer social prospects. So I invented a game in my front yard, <laughs> my big front yard. Never a good start. Which I, which I called Pong Ball. And the way pong ball worked was, 
I had I had tennis rackets. You gather none of your friends. Yes, I would alienate, alienate all my friends and practice for my one day podcast. And I would stand lonely on the corner, um, kind of facing into the yard, just where I could hit the ball through a window if I needed to and throw a ball, a tennis ball up in the air and then just blast it with my tennis racket as far as I could. And most of the goal of this game was to just hit the ball as far as I could. Um, it was only in recent years that I realized how truly pathetic that must have looked. How old were you at the time, Ian? Oh, maybe 10, 12, somewhere in there. Oh, you're fine. That's, that's the age kids fine. should be playing with friends and such, but not me. No, I was playing pong ball. Pong ball in the front yard. Is pong ball exclusively a driveway game, or could you conceivably play it on a sandlot or uh, maybe Ooh. a little league field? Mm, that gives it too much gravitas, too much panache. It needs mm-hmm. to kind of be tinged with desperation and sorrow to, to really land. Okay. Yeah. I second follow up question. Um, why Pong in the title? Like, there's because. nothing. Yeah. Well, that's a good question, Joe. Uh, it's the sort of the noise that the the tennis racket makes when it hits the yeah. tennis ball. Pong. Kind of gives a pong. Um, or more accurately, it's the noise I imagined it to make. So this concludes my report. Uh, no further questions, Your Honor. Love okay. It. Thank you for opening up today. I just like to I like to share a little bit about myself sometimes. All right, Joe. Tell us about yep. this book. I got things to say. Book, book. This is a nick about tennis. <laughs> wow, uh, sir. book good. <laughs> Me like book. <laughs> book tennis balling. <laughs> All right. Nick. Well, really earning that win this week. <laughs> Joe is completely checked out. Nick, this book combines so many things that I love. Um, okay. Can, can I list Ooh. them for you? What if we yeah. try and list them like a game? Oh, all the things that we know Joe loves. Oh, sure. My wife, Megan, is not in this book, nor is my dog, Charlie. Oh, spoilers. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll go first. Oh, okay. Locks. Ah, ooh, like locks, like the thing that boats go through on a river. There are no locks in this book. Um, Nick, would you like to take a guess at something in this book that I love? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, Nick, I'd like to hear about the book. <laughs> Nick, this is a book about tennis. It is a very, very short book about tennis, and it is an incredibly well-written nonfiction book about tennis. Uh, this this book is a hundred pages long, written in 1969 about a tennis match that took place in 1968 between two people. And my guess is that you have. Well, I actually don't know if you've heard of either of these people. Ian, my guess is you've heard of one of these people um, and not the other one. Yep. One is Arthur Ashe. Uh, Arthur Ashe. Ian, what do you know about Arthur Ashe? Uh, I just know, well, it's a wonderful alliterative name. I knew he was vaguely connected to tennis to the extent that, Joe, I had forgotten the name of this book when I was starting my prep. And I Googled Arthur Ashe tennis book, and this was the first option that came up. So oh, that's what that's I good. That's, okay, so nothing. That's pretty good because he's also written an autobiography, <laughs> which feels <laughs> that's not very nice. Oh, that says something, doesn't it? Yeah. So Arthur Ashe is like a tennis player that you might have heard of. He was the first black player of any notoriety in professional tennis. Um, he is a famous American tennis player to the to such a point that the center court at us at the us open tournament one of the nick grand slams that is played every year is called nice. arthur ashe good callback yeah yeah it's called arthur ashe stadium so like this guy's a big deal in not just american tennis but a big deal in tennis all right we've established our first character 
the other guy, the only other character that you need to know is a, is a guy called Clark Grabner. And Clark Grabner at the time has, uh, well, this is the guy that you don't know about. <laughs> yeah, this is the guy you don't know about. There is no stadium named after him, but he has a lot in common with Ash in this book. Um, they are both 25 years old. They're both amateur tennis players, which is a really cool idea that we don't have anymore at the professional level. Uh, like at the time that these guys were competing at the highest level in the sport, they both had full-time jobs. Like Clark mm-hmm. Grabner went back to New York and sold paper uh, after this. Uh, Arthur Ashe went back to West Point and was a lieutenant in the army after this. Uh, so these guys both had full-time jobs. They just played tennis recreationally, uh, and they were among the best in the world at it. We have our two characters. It's, I, I presume, this like the 60s or 70s, or when did the story take place? 1968. Um, it was, yeah, 1968 the tennis match was in. Um, Joe, okay. I've got a question quick before we go on mm-hmm. any further. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the third character in this uh, story is tennis itself? Uh, no. Oh, God, no. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, I mean, you could say that. I, I know, though. But sort of it kind of kind is. Of. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like it definitely is. Um, <laughs> or perhaps, Ian, the love of tennis. Oh, mm, of course. It's not about the love of tennis. <laughs> such a dick, Joe. <laughs> I, guys, I am the one that read the book this week. It is not about the love of tennis. <laughs> you can't just say that. Everybody's wrong with me. All right. So <laughs> I read the book. You remind me of that character from the Pirates of the Caribbean who says, oh, I'm telling the story. <laughs> <laughs> I am telling the story. What happens? Yeah, this this is what happens. The entire book, the all 100 pages of it, 120 pages of it, depending on your edition, the entire book takes place inside of a single tennis match that these two guys play against. It is the semifinal at the U.S. Open in 1968. The very first sentence of the book is Arthur Ashe serving the first point of the match, and the very last sentence of the book is like the final point of the match narrated and all of the action that happens in this which is a tennis match right like that's some of the action but also like so much more where it dives into like their backstories uh talks about their attitudes their family lives their playing styles it's a book about class and athleticism and parenting and civil rights like all of that stuff happens between those two points um so i'll ask the most obvious question i assume to anybody listening to this episode is i don't play tennis i don't care about tennis yes why would i ever read this book this is my question too joe do you have to like like or at least know what is a tennis in order to enjoy this book i don't have a court name (laughs) after me is this relevant to me the answer is no. Like the answer is absolutely not and i want to talk just for a minute minute. about john mcphee Wait, the answer is absolutely not what? you got to clarify. What <laughs> the you- answer is you don't have to know anything about tennis. <laughs> okay, you, okay. You that do not have to know about tennis. You do ways, not have sorry. to like tennis. You do not have to have any background information in tennis in order to be enthralled by this book. What then do you get out of it? And I, you can, I guess feel free to ramp up to that. But Yep. The reason you should read this book, if 
for nothing else. Like, I don't care about tennis. I don't care about Arthur Ashe. I've never heard of this Clark Grabner paper salesman guy. The reason <laughs> you should read this book is because of John McPhee. Um, and John McPhee is a nonfiction writer. Uh, he's still alive. He's something like 90 years old right now. He is a nonfiction writer and he does something that I think it, it's he does something that makes me keep coming back to his stories and his books over and over and over again. And it's this John McPhee writes books that sound like the most boring books on the planet. He's good. <laughs> like w- when you hear what these books are about, you're just like, wait, what? I would never read that book. And then you read it. And it's the most fascinating thing you've ever read. I think this would be a good place for me to introduce a game I brought, if that's oh. okay. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. Okay. So yes. This, this game This game is focused on the strange topics that John McPhee uh, talks about in his books. Um, and and uh, I want you to tell me, we're going to do this as, in the form of a tennis match. So um, one of oh. you will have a chance to uh, hold I serve. Love- and we'll, we'll love keep it. points, yes, as, as is right and proper. Um, the the game is called McFopic or Google Autofill Suggestion. So McFopics are obviously <laughs> topics that McPhee writes about, and Google Autofill Suggestions are when you type something into Google, it has the autofill option, which usually is extremely random. So I'm going to read a little phrase, and you tell me, is this a McFopic or a Google Autofill Suggestion? Um, does this make sense to you? Yes. Cool. Yeah, sort of. An example <laughs> would help, but the first am, question um, could be an example. Okay. Yeah, that's that's very fair. Okay, so so for instance, I might say an experimental blimp. Nick, McFopic or Google autofill suggestion. Gotcha. Now it's all clicking. Great. Is it clicking for you, Joe? It is clicking for me. Okay. Okay. Cool. It and remember, clicked. it is clucked. Remember, John McPhee is really good at digging into Slightly outdated, obsolescent, extremely granular things. So here's your first oh, one. He's trying to trick me. I'm going to go Google autofill on that one. <laughs> no, Nick, uh, Nick, Nick, here's your first one. You you get to serve first. Oh, I thought that was. No, it wasn't. One. That was just me helping you. I was giving you some some parameters. Oh, Thanks I've been helped. Help. Nick, you, you serve first. <laughs> Freight okay. transportation on the ocean. McFopic or autofill? transportation you know what um ooh, joe logistics are so hot right now um yeah it's that, like a whole i'm gonna go I'm gonna, I'm gonna say google autofill yeah people are searching up a storm about logistics these days google google autofill. Uh, i'm sorry you did not hold serve this is a mcfopic he one of one of his early books was about uh american merchant ship that and other was others of his books have focused on this as well uh joe it's over to you to serve I'm I'm ready. I have broken serve. I am up one zero in this set. Uh, you're actu- um, well, Nick, you're actually you know up anything 15 about love. Tennis, fifteen love. Well, well, you, well. You said I broke serve, so I, it's it's yeah. Okay, we're fine. we're fudging the rules. Let's not get into the weeds here. All right, fine. Joe, fine. Uh, Joe, yes. Joe, fishing for a small fish called a shad, McFopic or autofill. <laughs> <laughs> this this feels like. This feels like a McFopic to me. I could see John. I could see John McVie making uh, a fishing story about a shab being the most interesting thing you've ever read. Yeah, you are correct. That is, um, uh, you're up. You're up. You're up. Thirty love, and you have held serve, so you get to go again. Uh, 
This is exactly how tennis works. Litheads, if you don't know how tennis works, this is exactly it. Ooh. It's like a mix of tennis and volleyball. Okay. Oh, we're going to learn tennis today, too. I didn't know that. Here's another one for <laughs> you. great. The teeth of a sheep's head fish. McFoppick or autofill? I feel like John McPhee maybe got his fill of fishing writing about the shab. I do I think this is an autofill. I I do not Ooh. think this is a John McFoppick. You're you are correct. This is a this is our first uh our first autofill. He did write about Shad and also he loved fishing, but he did not write about the teeth of a sheep's head fish. All right, since it's since he, do, he doesn't go to that well too many times. No? Like he no? he he goes once. Um since it is uh game point, Nick, Joe is <laughs> Joe is up 40 love. Oh, yeah. This oh. is basement ping pong rules. We have switched to <laughs> it is game point. So now Nick gets to serve. The phrase is birch bark canoes. Birch bark canoes. God, I hope that's a book. I'd like to read that book. You are correct. It is, in fact, uh, he he investigates in one of his books, the last surviving maker of traditional birch bark canoes in New Hampshire. Um, and apparently it's wow. quite good. Uh, Nick, you're on a roll. It's your turn again. The natural and cultural history of oranges. And you are down 1540, but you can come back into it. The natural and cultural history of oranges. Guys, I'm literally looking at a picture of oranges right now. I digress. I think it's a sign. I'm going to go ahead and say Google. Oh, no. (laughs) You have lost ignominiously. Uh, there is no, there's no such thing as beyond getting beyond 40 points. So Joe, you win this. Mm -hmm. This is in fact a book that he wrote. And apparently it's one of his, one of his well, like better known books too. I had never heard of it, but, um, he investigates oranges very, very exhaustively. He also wrote books about a trip around America's nuclear plants, the geology of North America, that won a Pulitzer, um, an art thief who only stole thousands of paintings and art from Soviet people and an experimental blimp. (laughs) These are the things he wrote about. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> I like the art thief one. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, before. I really and, and, that and what I love about what I love about John McPhee, Nick, is like all of those things that Ian just said. I would like you to like add an addendum to the end of it. Where so when he says he wrote about an experimental blimp in your head, I want you to fill in. And it was the most interesting book I've ever read. He wrote about an art thief. And it was the most interesting book I've ever read. The experimental blimp book is called The Deltoid Pumpkin Seed. Oh, that's that's it's, amazing. And I'm just looking at a list of his like how prolific he was. I didn't realize this, but I mean, he has books in 1965, 66, 67, 68, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72. Like this guy's writing a book or two a year. Basically from 1960 until busy chat. I don't know. 2006. It seems like at which point he writes one every two years. He teaches at Princeton and he does one semester teaching writing. And then he doesn't do any of his own writing when he's teaching. And then he has a semester off from teaching at Princeton. And in that semester he travels, he researches like, like wildly just all over the place and, and he says that's kind of how he rotates the crops of his mind. He keeps things fresh so that does he Google as well? Uh, oh, actually, no. So he has uh, <laughs> I read a really fascinating. We should we should link this in the socials. Um, a fascinating New York, uh, New York Times magazine profile of him. He has like an old like MS-DOS computer, the kind of like 
the keyboard and the green screen with or the black screen with the green letters and it mm-hmm. runs a a computer system that was designed kind of proprietarily at Princeton for him in 1981 he still runs it in 2016 and um he has this extremely uh-huh. complex system of filing it's 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 bonkers it's complete he doesn't go he doesn't google he has no he does not google nick how dare you his very own system and i think when he dies any work he has left over no one will have access to it because they can't figure out his arcane systems okay. for retrieving he's knowledge basically neo he's kind of neo yeah yeah Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I was just eating something. Love, I love food, don't you? Mm-hmm. Especially eating on the show. It's a little rude, Mike Atticidian. Well, what can I say? I'm so passionate about food. I think we should do a food episode because, well, we've never done one. And also, it's the season of the food. Namely, it's food know, season. Thanks, a food episode sounds fun, but what if we did three? <laughs> <laughs> uh, surprise surprise theme month maybe maybe for our month of food you guys could start by bringing food books next week <laughs> that's a good start yes okay yes i will bring a i will bring a food book i'm still i'm still pinning down specifically which food book but um i promise you i will bring uh i will bring a food book next week and you know what it's gonna be tasty and delicious <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've read a book already for this. I, I do have a book picked out. But you know what? Let's let's keep that a surprise, Joe. Let's just let's just see what happens next time okay. on our food episode coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> Only in theaters <laughs> next week. Also on HBO Max. Somehow, somehow we don't have the Audible sponsorship, <laughs> but we do have the HBO Max podcast app. I'd like to know what this book is about now. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Nick, this book's about a tennis match. I've established that. Um, the interesting yeah. part about this book, though, is not the play-by-play of the tennis match. Although, I, I should assume. say it here now, that is really well done and also <laughs> really interesting, right? The Fair interesting enough. part of this book is everything else that happens inside of that match. It's the background that he dives into for Arthur Ashe. It's the background that he dives into for Clark Grabner. And while these two players have a ton in common, right? When I say a ton in common, like they're the same age. They both play tennis. They're both like on the Davis Cup team. So which just means they're really good at playing tennis. They are in so, so many ways, like diametrically opposed to one another. Like they are, they're, they're the opposites. Um, can I give you just a couple quick examples? <laughs> yeah, I think not only would I like that, Joe, I think it's going to be necessary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Arthur Ashe, as we talked about already, he's the only championship level black tennis player of his time. Uh, in fact, to this day, only one other black man, I guess, um, has won a, a Grand Slam tournament, um, which, which is just a crazy statistic. Um He's the only like championship level black tennis player this time. He is single. He is a liberal. He's like kind of hot headed. He's kind of mercurial. He's a finesse player. He's a risk taker. Grabner, on the other hand, is married with children. He is religious. He is he's conservative to the degree that on his desk, he has a signed photo of Richard Nixon. Gotcha. Which 
Okay. That's Classic. like that's like something Classic that would be on Alec Baldwin's desk in Thirty Rock. Like that's like that's like I don't think we're allowed to bring up Alec Baldwin jokes right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a joke. Poor Alec Baldwin. Uh, yeah, he's he's also like really risk averse, and he just plays like this steady game of tennis. So like from the very beginning, despite these guys' similarities, um, mm-hmm. McPhee frames these guys as opposites. So um, okay, so off the bat, seems like there's much bigger topics going on here at play right race you know cultural socioeconomic maybe how do these guys feel about each other yeah so that's another great question like you would think these guys would dislike each other or even like loathe each other hate each other but one of the things i love about this book is it happens you know there's levels of this game and there's layers of this book like the first layer of this book is a tennis match the second layer is hey, this is a really important moment in the history of the sport, right? Like, it's just, um, like, it's the beginning of the open era. Like, it's, like, this thing that happened. Oh, by the way, this tennis match, like, between, like, this black liberal dude and this white conservative dude with the signed picture of Richard Nixon on his desk, it takes place four (laughs) months after the assassination of Martin Luther King at the end of the 60s, right? So it's, like, this important moment in Mm. the history of the nation. It's also about this class struggle. And it's also, this is what I really love about it. It would be so easy to write this book and make it really Clark Grabner, like a bad guy in this book, but he's never presented like that. Like Arthur Ashe, he likes Clark Grabner. Like they get along with each other. They're teammates for the Davis cup, which is like the, mm, it's like the national team. It's like the tennis national team. They're teammates. And both of them say after the fact, they're like, yeah, it would have been really nice to win the U.S. Open, but I'm really looking forward to the Davis Cup, right? Like, that's what I really want to win. So they do get along with each other. That's kind of cool because um, tennis, especially when it's played at a high level, can sound and look kind of violent. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of precision and and and, and sophistication in tennis, but also like a ton of strength and a lot of like blasting past your opponent. So it's interesting. Like it it can maybe feel kind of combative. So it's interesting that he manages to kind of keep this balance of they're not enemies while they're doing this, such a kind of mano a mano antagonistic sporting pursuit. They're, they're just there to play the best, best dang game of tennis they can play. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, it reminds me of that stuff doesn't matter on the court. Am I right? <laughs> you, oh, Nick, you got it. You tell you clearly totally understand tennis. Yeah, <laughs> it, it reminds me a lot of um, it, there's a lot of books that uh, that writers will write about boxers, right? It, like like writers love writing about boxing because it's such a, it's mm-hmm. such an easy analogy or it's such like this romantic thing. It's like everything that has come before this boils down to mono e mono right it boils <laughs> down to yeah it boils down to punching like at the end of the day like you could talk all about like um you could talk all about muhammad ali's politics and his training and his background and the black muslims and you could talk all about george foreman's you know big big scary dogs and 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 his background and his eight kids all named george right but like at the end of the day it's muhammad ali and george foreman in a ring together and one of them wins Right, right. Like one of them wins this and all that backstory culminates in this single moment. And it's really just like, a, I don't know, it's it's kind of 
it's kind of cool and it's kind of I mean, I, I think I use the word beautiful a lot, but like when I think about tennis and like the the one versus one aspect of it, I really do think of it as this beautiful sport that is it, it's it's boxing without the punching. They call yeah. tennis the beautiful game. I just think people want to simplify the complicated stuff and sports seems to do that quite well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, like hey, here, here's the size. It sounds like. <laughs> It sounds like a, like a knock, but it's not. I don't intend it as such. It sounds like his whole stock and trade is complicating the things that we think are simple. Like we might see this match sure. on TV um, and be like, "Oh wow, interesting! That that guy beat mm-hmm. that guy. Nice." Um, but he's like, "Oh no, there is a ton of stuff going on behind the surface. Behind the surface. Behind the surface. Beneath the surface. You have no <laughs> idea about." So, like, what what are some of the things you get out of it past? a really, really well-told story. Like, what are some of those? Do you learn about how to solve racial issues? I guess that's what I'm getting at here, Joe. Yeah, okay. I don't want... I think that's the easy out here, right? Like, I think that'd be, like, an easy way for me to go and be like, you know what? And it's also, like, this allegory for the race struggles in America. And, like, it kind of is that. Like, like, that's absolutely one one of the layers of this book. But... Well, it's well, it certainly doesn't solve anything. Right. And it just (laughs) guys in the 1969 happened and it was good. We were good. Oh, man. We were good. Right. Well, it it would be so easy to present this as an allegory. And it is kind of. But if you get anything out of this allegory, like if you get anything out of this story, it's oh, is race a thing in America? Yeah, it's kind of complex. Uh, anyway, there was this great tennis match, right? Like it's I, like, that's kind yeah, of no, what it comes down to. And it's not satisfying. It's not like, oh, wow, he really tackled that one. But um, that's not the focus cool. of the book. I want to, I want to put forward a, a, an hypothesis that like, so I've, I've read, um, I, one of the, one of the sort of analyses of this that I read said like, this is basically the high watermark for sports journalism in America, um, which you could argue, I guess, but that's not the point. The point is. I feel like a lot of sports journalism, like the really extremely high quality stuff, manages to understand the assignment in terms of giving the match at the center its due as important, but not saying this this is the solution to race issues. This is the solution to polarization. This is a solution to, I don't know, war or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like... Good sports journalism says, look at this sporting event or this person's career. It shines a light on the culture, but in the end, it's a game. It's not just a game. The fact that it's a right. game is, is a big deal, but it's a game. And so I think good sports journalism is restrained to the point where it's not going to try and overclaim. And that sounds like this is that's what this book is doing. It's not overclaiming yeah. like good news. We can solve everything. I heard an interview with Bob Costas earlier this year and it, it, Bob Costas for, for lit heads that maybe aren't in the sports world is a famous sports journalist, uh, actually a tennis commentator among other things. And he said that one of the problems that he sees with current sports journal- journalism is sports journalists feel like it's their job to tell you the story of the game. And he's like, and it is like, that's absolutely one of your jobs as a sport journalist. But a statistic doesn't mean anything if you can't attach a story to it, right? Like a statistic is nothing without a story behind it. So the example he gave, I thought was really evocative. Uh, in the major in Major League Baseball right now, the 
basically pitching has become totally dominant in major league baseball. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. One of them is like, you might've heard about like the sticky stuff controversy. Have you guys heard of this? Yes. Spider tack. Yeah. yeah, Like, like one of it is like this, this spider tack that these pitchers are using that allows them to like crank up the RPMs on the ball. So Bob Costa says, Hey, it's one thing to say the ERA of the entire major league is 250, right? Like, like that, that's one thing to say. He says, it's another thing to say the ERA of the entire major league is the same ERA that Nolan Ryan had the year that he won his Cy Young. Like those are two ways to tell the same story. And one of them is grounded and has meaning. One of the cool things about levels of the game is like, it's a tennis match, but it's also grounded in so much backstory and so much history and so much, you know, family background and race and attitude and playing styles and class and all this stuff. Like it gives every point just that extra, that extra little spin of meaning. Because context matters. Um, like without a, a text, without a context is a pretext. If you have, if you don't have context for that, that statistic then it's it is meaningless absolutely i'm concerned nick isn't with us i'm right here i was just wrapping my head around that sentence that ian said <laughs> a text without a context <laughs> is a pretext text, yeah it took me a writing like, it down i read an analysis of um this is not same uh new york times magazine profile um an analysis of a uh, a book he wrote called the pine barrens which is about uh, a region in in new jersey um and he starts off with this with, with, with this very kind of uh, apparently dry recitation of all the different kinds of like the ecology of the pine barrens. It kind of like, it's this panoramic scope that, that, um, that sort of moves over the pine barrens. You get a general sense of the whole geography and the, the reviewer, um, the, the, the profile writer goes, this seems like a boring way to begin a story. And he gives some examples of like, hey, if you were Tom Wolfe, you might begin it this way. If you were Hunter S. Thompson, you might begin it this way. But no, he's very kind of, he's like, no, trust me. McPhee says, trust me. And then McPhee writes the book. And by the time you get to the end, you see that beginning in a much more, um, a much more complex light because the story that he tells justifies the beginning. And I think the idea of McPhee saying, trust me, the idea that he has these short, relatively short little books. And he says, Hey, this might not pop off the page at you, but when you spend time with it, you will feel like a better person for having read it, having spent that time. I've never read a John McPhee book and I desperately want to, um, I'm already a huge fan. I want to read all of his stuff. Lit heads recommend it, please. Because he he seems amazing. He seems fascinating. He would never make it on TikTok though. You got to start with something strong, real True. strong. Get their gotta, attention. Gotta get get him right hooked, away. Engage with them. You know him. what I mean? Catch him. You got you got a quarter of a millisecond to get somebody's attention these days. So Nick, do you have any updates on TikTok? Uh, no, I should not. My update is that I looked at my wife the other night and said, "What the fuck am I doing with my life?" That's what TikTok and, does and, to you. Yes. And I haven't been on TikTok since. Hey, <laughs> oh, congratulations. Um, cool. Ian, tell the litheads what to do. Litheads. But like do it in a nice way. Don't like, you know, command it, you know. Litheads. Yeah, tell them. 
Tell him. Say it like Frasier. We've had a lot of fun here today, and I hope you can have some fun of your own, maybe by listening to us. British? Clapping along with us as we say the words that you love so much. Or maybe by heading on over to our social media on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Okay, stop, stop doing it like you don't know like <laughs> And just liking and sharing our posts there. You know what? You could also give us a review in the iTunes store. Five stars, if you please. And best mm-hmm. of all, folks, take a look at our website where you can find all the past episodes and where you can most importantly recommend a book, recommend a theme, tell us what to do, make us your servants. Uh, okay. Uh, please read a quote, Joe. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I have a quote. It's actually just the very first like paragraph of this essay. And then I have just like a, another little bit of analysis of why it, that paragraph is so good. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you the quote and then I'm going to tell you why it's so good. Arthur Ashe, his feet apart, his knees slightly bent, lifts a tennis ball into the air. The toss is high and forward. If the ball were to drop, it would, in Ash's words, make a parabola and drop to the grass three feet in front of the baseline. He's practiced tossing a tennis ball just so thousands of times, but he's going to hit this one. His feet draw together. His body straightens and tilts forward far beyond the point of balance. He's falling. The force of gravity and muscular momentum from legs to arm compound as he whips his racket up over the ball. He weighs 155 pounds. He's six feet tall and right-handed. His build is barely full enough to not be describable as frail, but his coordination is so extraordinary that the ball comes off his racket with furious speed. With a step forward that stops his fall, he moves to follow. It's not just the way that the short sentences create a frame-by-frame slow-motion effect. It's the, word, it's the way the word lifts in the first sentence lifts into the paragraph with an F sound, which then follows its own parabola like a thrown ball through feet Forward, falling, force, 55, full, frail, furious, forward, fall, and follow. Subject and medium step out onto the floor like dancers. Dancers.